Hello, and welcome to Lead, Travel, Pray. My name is Michelle Strike, and today Rebecca Ellis and I are continuing the conversation with Sandy Schneider, where we're learning about her recent travels to Japan. I can't wait to take a deeper dive on this one. I have to say, um, from the last one, I felt like we got a preview. Now we get to take a deeper dive. So we got a little taste, and um, now we're going to look at things to see, do, and experience when visiting Japan. So Sandy, I'm wondering, um, what did you do that you would recommend as the ultimate must-see? Man, oh man, I feel like I avoid this question all the time because I'm like, everything is a must-see. It's all so great. Um, But if I had to pick out one thing, and it doesn't mean it was at the top of my list, but it was something that was so impactful that I feel like particularly for Americans, that um, is is definitely something to put on your must-see list, is a visit to Hiroshima in Japan, which the name probably you recognize as a place where we, the United States, dropped an atomic bomb um, on Japan as part of World War II um, that happened back in 1945. And I mean, that's about the extent of what I knew about it going in is, yeah, we dropped an atomic bomb on Japan as part of the war and right, those are bad and people died and that's it. I didn't know anything else. And to be there and to hear the story again in great detail, um, is, is really impactful. Maybe comparing it to, um, you know, the Holocaust Museum that we have here in the U.S., something that, you know, you know the historical story, but to actually insert yourself into it and see it and hear it and almost feel what that terrible situation must have looked like. Um, so I wanted to share a couple of the things that I learned um, there that I can't say I learned anywhere else. Um, so... Right, it was part of the war, and the United States had been working on an atomic bomb for some time, and we knew its power, and we knew its devastation, and we felt like it was something we had to use as a weapon in this war. And they actually had been monitoring a number of cities as potential places where the bomb would be dropped. And you might imagine that the weather actually plays a role in that process. And so when it came time to determine which city it was, Hiroshima was the the city that was determined to be the target. There was a mission. The bomb was dropped. It actually exploded 600 meters above the city, so in the air. And when, I never thought about that. I just assumed it hit the ground. It didn't. It exploded 600 meters above a hospital in the city. Um, and the deaths, the immediate deaths that occurred were primarily to due to the heat and the energy of the explosion itself. And so I think I just knew atomic bombs are have radiation and that kills people. And so that tended to be what was in my head. And then when you think about, oh, wait, I mean, this was a sonic explosion that occurred with tremendous amount of energy and heat such that people were burned in the moment, in in the initial explosion. 
um, I had jotted down some numbers. So it was estimated that 140,000 people were killed in that initial blast, which was estimated to be about a third of the population of that city. Hmm. And the Japanese had some inkling, some ideas um, that these cities could be targeted in some form or fashion. And so some of the super wealthy people or the maybe informed people had already gotten out of the city. So the city mm-hmm. maybe wasn't at the, the actual population when the bomb exploded. So 140,000 roughly people were killed in that initial blast. Um, and then people who didn't die right away or maybe even di- right because people died right away, people died within a week, people died within a month, people continued to die. And the reality is that some people actually lived a life. They, while they were impacted and they suffered um, the effects of radiation, they were actually able to live for years. And so the, Hmm. the count of how many people actually died went on for many, many, many years, and I think is still something that they're paying attention to. Um, and so right now the estimation is that 341,000 people were killed in that one atomic bomb. Wow. Wow. That was crazy. It was as an American, to be there and to know that we were responsible for that and to have such a wonderful Japanese visit, it was uncomfortable. It, it made mm-hmm. me feel like, what must they think about me and my country? And I was surprised to find such warmth and hospitality from the Japanese. I mean, clearly they knew we were Americans. Everybody knew we were Americans. And I thought there might be some, I don't know, animosity And there was absolutely none of that. They have um, a museum there, uh, a very large museum, which tells the history and the story. And um, I expected there to be anti-American stuff, whether it be protesters or whether it be the, the verbiage and how the story was presented. And so it was so surprising to me to find, to not find that at all. The story is told according to the facts. The Americans dropped an atomic bomb as part of the war. It happened. People died. All of this is factual information. But there was no um, opinion around it. There was no, can you believe the Americans are terrible people and they did this? It was just facts. And the purpose one of the purposes of the museum is to end atomic bombs, to end nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so um, the Americans, of course, are part of that story because we still have uh, nuclear weapons, as many other countries in the world do. And so as you go through this Peace Museum, the story ends with, here's the reality of how many nuclear bombs exist in the world today. Here are the countries where they exist, and we're pushing for peace, peace, and that means the elimination of um, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So it, and it's hard to argue with that, right? <laughs> like, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can totally get that. Um, so it was a really impactful you know, you don't leave excited or jolly, but you leave with a better understanding of something that happened in this world. And I personally truly hope we, we not just the United States, but the world, do not experience that again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I obviously haven't been there to experience that, but your experience of it sounds like how I felt after going to um, Dachau concentration camp Mm -hmm. in Germany. Now, that wasn't something that the Americans, you know, spearheaded, but at the same time, it was just like um, one part of the human race doing an atrocity against another part of the human race. I did feel like some sense of responsibility, Mm -hmm. like our people did this, and um, that it was kind of very sobering it brings it in your face Mm -hmm. yeah totally and I think there's a positive to that to Mm -hmm. feeling that emotion to putting yourself personally into a really bad story it's not something that happened to other people Um, this is something that I can play a role in and it could happen to me and so do I want to take a stand against nuclear weapons do I want to take a a stand supporting peace internationally Um, and so just having the experience really changes your perspective and your frame of mind Um, and I'm hopeful it helps us to make better decisions politically from a world perspective to avoid some of the atrocities that have occurred all over the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, that's a little bit of a Debbie Downer now, isn't it, on our Lead Travel <laughs> it is. podcast? But, I, you know, it's great to um, share and hear about that experience and give p- folks ideas of what they would be in store for. And I think for many, it is a, a really great learning Um, experience that they hope to have someday so that's great thank you Uh, what if you're just planning to visit Tokyo you know we've talked about the Olympics are coming there maybe some people are traveling and just will have a a, some time to view this other things in the city while they're there and not want to venture out so far tell us what you found in terms of temples cultural performances shopping anything that you think would be worth seeing while in Tokyo Oh my gosh, there's opportunities for all of those things. Um, So cultural performances. Obviously, when you're visiting a a foreign country, what a great opportunity to learn more about the culture and about the people than to actually attend cultural performances. Um, And I got to tell you, it was not me who raised her hand and said, please sign me up for cultural performances. (laughs) Um, Because we were a group, we each had an opportunity to say what we wanted to do. And my friend Heidi who is um, a trained ballet dancer who studied dance full-time, um, was familiar with a, a, perform- a Japanese performance called Kabuki and said, hey, let's go to a Kabuki performance. I said, sure. I had no idea what it was. And then I Googled Kabuki. And I still didn't know what it was. Um, but Kabuki is a, a traditional cultural Japanese performance on the stage where you have performers who are acting um, out a story. In Kabuki, what is interesting is that it's all men. Only male Mm. performers perform in Kabuki, even though there are female characters in the story. So men will dress up as women and they will, what's really funny about it is they, they create this very high pitched voice to denote that they are playing a female (laughs) character, which in our ears sounds very artificial and fake, but that's part of um, their theater. So you may have seen pictures. They wear a lot of white makeup Mm -hmm. um, and Mm -hmm. some dramatic costuming and they they um, oftentimes play out historical 
stories is the performance that they do. Um, there, it's in Japanese, so I wasn't exactly sure what was going on, but they did have an English translator um, that you could purchase for a nominal fee, like $5, where you um, could hear, uh, watch. They had It was written words in English to translate what they were singing and what, what was happening. I'd still say I understood maybe 50% of what was going on, um, but I got to tell you, the thing that... that um, I thoroughly enjoyed about the show was not actually what was happening on the stage, but what happened when they had intermission. So um, at intermission time, it's over the dinner hour, and our friend Mariko said, hey, you're going to, unless you're going to starve, right, you're probably going to want to bring some food. Well, in the U.S., like, we wouldn't bring food into a theater, right, to eat in the theater, but that Mm -hmm. is how they do it. And so... People would bring little bento boxes um, in a shopping bag with them and sit them under their seat. And then at intermission time, when it's otherwise dinner time, they pull out their bento box and they eat. So we were prepared for this. We were, a li- I was a little bit uncomfortable about this. And so at the, the dinner period, I thoroughly enjoyed watching how this played out. Every, again, very orderly, everyone reaches down under their seat, pulls up their shopping bag with their bento box. They've got their chopsticks. They've got a little napkin. They've got the wet cloth, right? And they it's almost silent in the theater as everybody is eating their dinner. And then when they're done, they everything in the bento box like boxes up really nice and tidy. They put it back into their bag and put it back underneath their um, chair to, to, again, we mentioned this, to take their trash home with them when they Mm -hmm. leave the theater. I thought this was fascinating. I was like, how is nobody dropping anything on this carpet? (laughs) This would never happen in the United States. It would be a hot mess. Can you imagine? There would be food everywhere. There would be spills. Um, So my takeaway of the Kabuki performance was actually more um, cultural around, again, how they do things in Japan, which is just different than how we might do them here. Yeah, that's really cool. So then what happened after they ate? Did they get up and talk or what happened? Yes, and there was, um, I think they were selling some concessions outside. So if you didn't bring food, there was something you could have ate. Um, And yeah, and people would stand and move around potentially use the restroom and chat but again like this um respectful kind of quiet chatting um I don't know how to describe it it's just very different than what I would have been Mm -hmm. used to in the United States where we tend to be louder always loud (laughs) I'm just trying to picture all the smells that would be in a U.S. (laughs) right halftime yes right Um, It would be overwhelming. You know, um, I mentioned the Kabuki Theater, which was in Tokyo. Um, By the way, if you would want to do this, you have to get tickets in advance. Um, And we met a number of Japanese people who were like, oh, my gosh, you went to that performance because it was a really well-known performance that was hard to get tickets to. And then, like, we're the American visitors who got tickets. Again, kudos to my travel partners who did all the research and were on it and got it done. So it was sort of a big deal. We were there. But an even bigger deal, when we were in Kyoto, a different cultural performance called, okay, and pardon my Japanese, which is terrible, um, I think it's Adori, um, is another cultural performance of theater, 
dance and uh, song. And what's interesting about this theater performance is that where Kabuki is all males, Adori is all females. Mm -hmm. And there, if there's a male character, there might be a female playing a male character. And the women in this performance are going to be the geishas um, and their apprentices called the, again, apologize for my Japanese, I think it's the Makos would be the geisha apprentices. And they are doing an entertaining performance. Um, Do you guys know much about the geishas? I read a book on them back um, in the early 2000s. Totally fascinating. As we were prepping for this, I was like, do they still have geishas? Yes. Okay, because it seemed like that in the book. Yes, totally. I I don't think I know anything, although Mulan might have taught me something about (laughs) geishas. But it would be only a Disney movie reference that I would know, if anything. I don't even know if I'm in the right... Yeah, I, I knew, I mean, like, I was familiar with the term, but can't say that I really knew anything about uh, geishas. And I think, as is, I think, somewhat common in the American culture, we might equate geishas with prostitution or some sort of okay. sexual favors being provided, which is actually not the case at all. So geishas are female entertainers for the purpose of men. And so there would be potentially dancing and singing and theater performances. So these are well-trained women who are providing theater performances, not necessarily sexual favors for the men that they're performing for. Um, And so I think there was... There was definitely that conversation in Japan where they wanted to be clear that this is what a geisha is, where I think in the American culture there has been some crossover where some people may think that geishas are um, also providing sexual favors as in prostitution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's part of what I had um, read about. Mm Mm-hmm. So the, the theater, the Adori theater performance, um, in, similar to Kabuki, wasn't Japanese, um, and you've got very talented people on stage in elaborate, beautiful costuming, lots of makeup, hair done in the what we might have perceived as a traditional geisha um, style. Um, in that performance, there was no English translation. So it was... It was somewhat hard to follow the story though some you know maybe 25% of it I followed and yet you there's an energy and there's a feel behind the music and the dance that makes you feel like you're kind of part of it even though you don't necessarily know everything that's going on um which was a really fun way to experience the culture and had I not gone with this group of people I don't think I ever would have picked to do these things and yet they were really great experiences yeah that's really cool any other cultural experiences I was gonna say do you want to know what I raised my hand and said I wanted to do (laughs) yes (laughs) so so Heidi said she wanted to do kabuki theater and I was like I don't even know what that is but sure let's do it Um, I said I wanted to go to a Japanese baseball game. (laughs) 
Um, I, I am a big baseball fan, and I know that Japan um, has professional baseball. And I was at some point looking up things to do in Tokyo and saw it. And I was like, yes, let's totally do this. And kudos to my travel partners who were um, on board with the idea. And so we went to a baseball game one night in Tokyo at the Tokyo Dome, their big baseball arena. Um, and it was um, the Tokyo Giants. Did I get this right? Yes, versus the Hanshin Tigers. Do I know either one of these teams? No. Do I know <laughs> anything about Japanese baseball? No. Um, but I know baseball, and essentially the game is the same. So I expected to be able to follow this, even though it's not in English, which I was able to follow the baseball game just fine. But I got to tell you, it was super different than and any baseball game I've been to here in the U.S. The number one difference was they have cheer, cheerleaders, which we don't have in baseball, um, male and female cheerleaders. And they're on the field before the game starts doing what you would expect cheerleaders to do. But when the game starts, the cheerleaders move to the outfield. The home team cheerleaders, I think, were in the right field where we might have right field bleachers, something like that, is where their cheerleaders were. And then the away team cheerleaders were in left field where the bleachers would be. And they've got their pom-poms and they've got like the big, what do you call those? Megaphones. Megaphones. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, and they're leading cheers the entire game. <laughs> so the entire game, there are songs, cheering songs that are being sung. So here's how this looks. It's the first inning, um, and the away team is up to bat first, which would be normal. And so the left field cheerleaders are now on their feet, along with all of their fans on their feet, singing songs, cheering on their team. When they were done, oh, by the way, it doesn't matter if they get a hit, if they strike out, it does not matter. They are singing their songs. <laughs> when they are done, they sit down, and now the home team who's up to bat, their cheerleaders stand up, and they sing their songs, which are different, and everybody knows the songs. Every fan is, not every fan, most every fan is on their feet singing along. So there is songs that go along with the baseball game, which you know, we don't particularly have here, which right. I thought was fascinating. And I kept thinking, aren't they getting tired of this song? But it was just like they kept getting more pumped up about it, which <laughs> just created a really fun environment that was, of course, very different than what I had expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds kind of like basketball here in the U.S., mm. as you were describing it. So I have very small experience of Japanese baseball. In 1996, when the Olympics was in Atlanta, it was the only Olympic event that I went to, and it was Japan versus Italy. It was the most boring Olympic event ever. I ended up <laughs> leaving early so I would not have been the one to choose this baseball game but I feel like I would have missed out because there's this whole cultural piece to it that of course we didn't experience at the Olympics when co countries are playing each other yeah do you remember them singing while you while they were playing there was absolutely no singing oh, huh. it was very boring <laughs> interesting yeah the singing made it like uh, brought a whole new ambiance to baseball um the other thing that there were two other things I thought really interesting about baseball. Um, secondly, was they have beer girls. 
So like here, we might have kind of burlier men carrying beer, a thing with beer cans um, mm-hmm. up and down the stairs. And they might be yelling, Budweiser, Budweiser, get your Budweiser. <laughs> and they've got a button on that says Budweiser, like $8 or whatever it might be. In Japan, they have beer girls, tiny little adorable girls in like kind of cheerleader outfits. And they have a canister of draft beer on their back that they wear like a backpack. And they've got like a hose or nozzle that comes over Mm. their shoulder. They've got a holster of plastic cups. It's kind of like a camelback. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yes, with draft beer. Mm -hmm. And so they run, literally run up and down the stairs selling beer. And if you raise your hand, they pull a plastic cup out of their uh, their holster and fill you up. That's cool. Very different. Very different. Our beer guys. Um, And then the last thing was, you know, in the United States, baseball is pretty casual. Like you might wear a jersey, it's warm, you might wear shorts, tennis shoes, whatever. There, um, people are coming from work where they're probably wearing suits. And so they wear their suit to the baseball game. I have never seen so many well-dressed men at a baseball game before. I don't think I've ever seen somebody in a suit before at a baseball game. Um, But that was fascinating to me. I mean, it was a lot of people in suits. Yeah, very, very different experience. Very different. (laughs) Let's talk about a different experience. What about temples and shrines? You mentioned them in the last podcast. So what was that like? Yeah, so think about temples and shrines in Japan like you might think of cathedrals in Europe. Like they're everywhere mm-hmm. and there's religious significance to them, there's historical significance, there's probably architectural significance to them. So in Japan, um, the, the, there's only 1% Christian um, in the country. And Shinto or Shintoism is um, a traditional Japanese faith. And then Buddhism was brought in from China. So you have a lot of Buddhists in Japan and that Buddhists have temples. Um, and you have a lot of Shinto shrines. Both would be considered religious places or places of worship or places where God might exist in those particular religions. So just like in Europe, you might go to um, check out like the big cathedral in the city or multiple cathedrals in various cities. Um, It's the same in Japan. So anywhere you go, you'll find Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines. Even in downtown Tokyo, I mean, you just turn a corner and you might find in the middle of this very urban modern city, a Shinto shrine with a red Tory gate, which indicates you're, you're entering this space, um, and there's a cleansing process to prepare you for this religious experience. I um, had never been to a Shinto shrine before, was not necessarily, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not necessarily very familiar with Buddhism, but um, in ev- I think in every city we were in, experienced Uh, Buddhist temples and Shinto shrines and even though you may not know much about the faith I think you feel you 
feel the spirit, spirituality of the location. And of course, there's lots of people there who are of that faith, who are worshiping, who are praying. Um, and so that was, it was um, interesting, it was fascinating, and I think a spiritual experience to, to visit some of those places. Yeah, interesting. The one, um, I think I mentioned in the first episode, a place called Koyasan. Koyasan is um, located on a mountain on Mount Koya, and it is, I don't know, maybe you'd call it a village? Um, but it is um, a place which is considered the home of a particular sect of Buddhism. And in this village of Koyasan on the top of a mountain, there are 117 Buddhist temples. So Whoa. it's like, right. So it's like that a whole crazy. community of Buddhist temples and spirituality. And what's interesting is that they have created some tourism around this beautiful place in the mountains. And about 50 of the 117 uh, temples actually do overnight stays in their monasteries. So you can stay overnight or multiple nights with the um, Buddhist monks overnight and experience right so no technology um Hmm. there are quiet hours there's early to bed early to rise because you have worship in the morning and if you stay there regardless of your your religious beliefs you are expected to participate in the ceremony in the morning which i think is 6 a.m oh wow there's no sleeping in there's no saying no thank you (laughs) i don't want to this is what you're signing up for yes right um And again, you don't really, if you haven't been to one before, you don't really know what's happening. But having grown up in the Catholic Church, where there's a lot of traditional traditional, uh, dress, traditional actions about kneeling or use of incense, the Buddhist ceremony had a lot of that traditional feel. I mean, I had no idea what was going on. but it was really interesting as a, a, a white American to be invited into this ceremony and mm-hmm. to observe and to worship in whatever way you're comfortable worshiping. But if, if you have any interest in um, spirituality or learning more about uh, Buddhism, highly recommend checking out Koyasan and considering um, a stay. We only stayed one night, so we were there a day and a half and over one night, and I totally could have spent more time there. Total zen, right? So just Mm. imagine a beautiful place, very peaceful, very spiritual, and I can imagine that if you spent a few days there, that it would have a, a, a real impact on you and where you're at in your life. Yeah, I like that. So, um, totally shifting gears here, um, what was your favorite food? By far, the Japanese souffle pancakes. Have you guys heard of these? <laughs> I have not, but I saw your pictures and they on Facebook. They looked amazing. Oh my gosh! I will totally post this on in our show notes because these are absolutely delicious. I am not necessarily a pancake fan. Don't think pancakes. Um, these are thick. They're tall and they're a bit eggy and fluffy. So more like a souffle would be with air pockets in it. Oh my goodness. 
delicious. So delicious that I ate them twice, once in Tokyo and once in Osaka. I ordered the exact same thing. It had um, some cream che- whipped cream cheese, some whipped cream, and some berry compote on them. Mm. It's making my mouth water right now talking about it. Um, absolutely <laughs> You're delicious. making me hungry, for sure. Um, I came home, and I'm like, where can I get these? They're hard to find, but it's the pla- The restaurant we went to is called A Happy Pancake, and I heard there's one in San Francisco. So oh. I don't know if that's 100% true, but um, there is a place in Orlando that is serving them. you got to know I checked it out. Mm-hmm. It's not the same. They're not bad, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. It's not the same. So in our last episode, you shared a sushi surprise that wasn't necessarily desirable. Any other food surprises while you were there? Yeah, the biggest one was the, you know, the whole fish. Um, (laughs) I think the other surprise I had was not necessarily about the food itself, but about the way that the Japanese eat and the healthier foods that they're eating um so i mentioned at koyasan at the the buddhist monastery they only eat vegetarian there so you Mm. eat dinner at the monastery and you're eating a vegetarian dinner and it was delicious and they eat lots of different foods so that night we had 14 different small dishes in front of us each of us individual servings of a variety of foods um I was amazed at sometimes the portion sizes of the food that you would order in Japan. It was a lot of food. And then I would watch these women, young girls, tiny little things. They were petite, small, just small girls. And I thought, how could they possibly eat this much food? And they did. And Hmm. so it really made me question, what are we eating in the United States (laughs) that is contributing to our obesity when we've got these the Japanese who are eating not necessarily bad food but a healthy portion size of things like noodles where we might here try and stay away from pastas or noodles they're eating them and there's appears to be not a significant weight problem so that that I haven't figured that out there's probably a lot to learn about that but my observation was really interesting like what are we eating here in the U.S. that of course is contributing to our obesity problem yeah interesting takeaway Um, So you mentioned that everybody got to choose where to go for one excursion. And I think that we heard about everybody, but where Katie went. And I know Katie, so I'm super interested to hear what did she choose. Yes, yes. Thank you for asking. So um, Katie picked uh, a cat cafe. (laughs) Have you guys been to a cat cafe? No. No, we have one in Indianapolis, but I have not visited it. Yeah, so so I know that they are kind of popping up all over the United States. Mm -hmm. I had never been to one. They have been in Japan for a number of years. It's not a brand new thing there. But there is a district in Tokyo called Harajuku, and it is a fascinating area. Think youth, think crazy, what we might consider crazy youth, Japanese youth culture, right? So pink hair, blue hair. Um, these different kind of strange um, outfits where a girl might have on a, a pink mini skirt with like leather suspenders and not, I wouldn't say 
slutty by any means, but sort of a unique, certainly out of the norm and out of the Japanese norm as well, attire. So this uh, street is Takashita Street, is the main street, and it's lit up like Vegas would be. Lots of flashing lights, kind of gaudy, lots of bright paint colors. And on this street, there's all sorts of vendors selling unusual products. There's unusual restaurants, um, bars, and a cat cafe, Um, (laughs) which if you have not been and you love cats, you should definitely check it out. You pay a nominal fee to get in, and you're in sort of an interior environment. It might be a house, or in this case, it was like the second floor of what might have otherwise been an office building that they converted into multiple rooms. They decorated it like maybe it was Alice in Wonderland, and then the cats, lots of cats live there. And so you have the opportunity to buy a coffee and sit and play with cats, many of whom are sleeping and don't, <laughs> don't necessarily <laughs> want to be played with right now. Um, but that was, that was Katie's pick, and I had not done it before, probably wouldn't have raised my hand to do it, but enjoyed the cat experience and enjoyed just the experience of walking down Takashita Street. I hope I got that street name right. Um, and just seeing all these unique things that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. Yeah, sounds like an awesome, awesome, awesome experience. So thanks, Sandy, for sharing um, so many of your stories with us. For more information about Sandy's Japan adventures, please check out leadtravelparade.com. And if you're new to joining us, you'll find out all of our travel episodes, including 100 Days, 100 Travel Tips on leadtravelparade.com. Let us know what you think about what you've heard. If you want us to highlight other places that we've gone and take a deeper dive, it would be great to hear um, about where you might want us to highlight. We've talked about a lot of our adventures and we can go a little bit deeper on them. So message us your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for future topics, whether it's about travel, leading, or faith. And recommend it to those in your network how who might have a passion for leadership travel or prayer so thank you ladies very much it was nice to spend time with you